And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Shunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, hello, hello again, and thank you, my girl, for introducing me to you on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday here on KCEF Digital Radio, 785live.com. I'm your host, Shannon Riley. I am a Shakespeare fanatic, and I get to come to you every Sunday on the 8th and tell you about Shakespeare, what I know, what i like to share, and hopefully someone out there would like to share with me. Hey, if you'd like to talk to me, you can always send me an email at shannon at shannonjriley.com. I would love to hear from you if you have any ideas for an upcoming show. Just want to shoot the breeze. Uh, let me have an email at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. And we are on play four because we have started a brand new and exciting path. We are trying to cover the complete works of William Shakespeare one play at a time and in order or at least close to order what we think they were written. And so I'm going to start off today by hitting our fourth play, which is Richard III, arguably Shakespeare's first classic and really one of his greatest plays, and it came very early on in his career. It's also possible he was writing this with a couple of other playwrights, possibly even Christopher Marlowe. But I gotta say that this play, and I'm not the only one who says this, a lot of scholars believe, and I'm not a scholar, I'm just a fanatic, but a lot of scholars believe that Shakespeare really takes the upper hand on this play. It's now been a process of writing his first tetralogy, which are four plays meant to be performed or at least read together, and that would be Henry VI, Part One, Two, and Three, and culminating in Richard III. This has been a process going on for about two years now, and we're finally up to Richard III, the final play, and Shakespeare seems to really take the lead. A lot of scholars believe, if anything, this was his first big major work that he did most of the work on, as opposed to the three previous plays which could have had a lot more help from various playwrights. Now, it was very popular in its time, Richard III, and uh, it's very popular today, and it's a favorite play of mine. I can't wait to dive into it because there's a lot to talk about, and I'm hoping I can do it all in just one episode. But before we get too far into Richard III, we have to hear our quote of the day. So, my boy, give us the intro. And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. That's right, the quote of the week. There's so many from this play. You could do, Now is a winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. That's an act one, scene one. Or you could do, A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, act five, scene four. These two quotes sandwich our play. They, they really do run the gambit of from, from Richard's vicious beginning to Richard's horrific end and in between you have a play that is filled with murder duplicity some of the greatest moments of Shakespeare's early life as he recounts the building of this monster how true is it we're going to talk about that as well but first I'm going to try and give you as best I can a short little synopsis of what's happening in Richard III now if you've been listening to my previous podcast and I hope you have been you know the story so far if you'd like to catch up on any of my podcasts, by the way, you can find those podcasts right here at KSEF Digital Radio, or you can visit me at ShannonJRiley.com, and you'll find an entire listing on ShannonJRiley.com of all of our podcasts that you could listen and catch up on. I'm a little behind, but not too far behind on getting those posted. Thank you again to my beautiful wife, Alex, who makes it possible. In any case, 
Richard III is now the final play of this arc that has been building with Shakespeare's first big writing effort. It opens with his brother, Richard III's brother, Edward IV, being crowned King of England. Now, Edward has two brothers. He has his brother, George, who is known also as the Duke of Clarence and is referred to as Clarence. That's the thing about this play is people change names so much and you, you got to really pay attention. And then he has his younger brother, Richard III, who is misformed, misshapen. He has a hump back. He has a withered arm. He is sometimes portrayed with a club foot. Here is a man who is also known as Richard, Duke of Gloucester. Richard wants the crown and he wants it desperately. And he is third in line for this crown. And to top it off, the king has two children. So there's a lot of people in his way of ever reaching that crown. And he even opens by talking very clearly to the audience in a strong soliloquy about how he was misshapen by nature, so he's misshapen in his heart. And if he can't play the lover, he will play the villain true and true to the end. Even at the beginning, Shakespeare is setting this up, that this is a man you cannot trust. Don't turn your back on him. And yet you watch as he carefully, carefully, like a spider, webs his enemies up and drains them dry. It's brilliant in what he does. He starts first with Edward by convincing Edward that there's someone out to get him. And according to some soothsayers, it's someone that starts with a G. His brother George, the Duke of Clarence, is obviously the first contender that wants to take his crown. So immediately, Edward has his little brother arrested and locked up. Richard goes to him and says, oh, I can't believe this happened to you. This should not have happened. Clarence, I'm going to get you out of this. I'm going to get you out. Don't worry about it. In the meantime, while he's locked up, Edward falls ill. His wife is terrified that he's going to die, and he gets weaker and weaker as the days go by. By the way, there's historical evidence of this too, but I'll talk about that on the other side. So Elizabeth, his queen, is desperate to keep Edward safe. In the meantime, Richard, now with the whole court focused in on the king failing ill health, sends two murderers to Clarence's cell and has him killed. It's an immediately brutal betrayal. It's a betrayal of fatricide, and it sets up a whole list of killings that's going to happen. Right after this, I mean immediately after this, he goes to the widow of of Warwick, one of his enemies, that he killed on the battlefield and says, Lady, I will have you. And she says, You will not, you misshapen monster. You will never have me. You killed my husband. And he says, Yes, I did that. I did. I'm so sorry. Here, take my sword and stab me. She refuses. And he says, I, I only did it because I was so enthralled with your beauty. Please, please be my wife. And she wanders off to ponder, Is it better to be his wife and protect herself or not? Well, that's only the beginning of her downfall. Meanwhile, the king dies. And right after he dies, they, of course, all feign that we've got to make sure that his son, Edward, is named Edward V and is taken to London for a coronation. Well, along the way, Richard arranges to have his bodyguards, which are his two uncles on his mother's side, arrested and thrown into prison. And he takes over as Lord Protectorate of this boy. He gets him to London, puts him in the tower, and convinces his mother that she should send his brother so that they can be together. The younger boy comes, his name also happens to be Richard, and Richard and Edward, two young boys, 12 and I believe 10, are held in the tower. The mother, in the meantime, has run. She does not want to risk anything happening to her, and she's hiding out in a sanctuary in a church. Meanwhile, there are other contenders who want to stop poor Richard from reaching the ground. First of all, there's this good buddy Hastings. Hastings has been a fighter. He's Lord Chamberlain. 
He's then very loyal to King Edward, and he's afraid the Chamberlain will never let him be crowned king. So, of course, he calls him in for a meeting, they sit down and talk, and then he accuses him of helping the witch, cast a spell on him that caused his withered arm, and has him immediately arrested, dragged out, and beheaded. Richard is on a roll, <laughs> literally. So he starts killing these people who are in his way. Meanwhile, he turns to his good friend Buckingham, and he says, Buckingham, you've got to help me spread the rumor that my wife is ill, because he wants to already get rid of her. You also have to help me make sure that everybody knows that King Edward was illegitimate, and his two sons, by that same end, are also illegitimate, and the only true king can be Richard III. So Buckingham starts off on this great big lie to try to convince all of the subjects that Richard is the true king of England. It works. People call for Richard to be crowned king. And uh, although several people find it to be very questionable, he at first pretends he doesn't want it. And then he, of course, accepts the idea that he must be crowned king immediately. But he's worried about the boys. And he's afraid that they're going to ruin everything. So he goes to Buckingham again and says, hey, go kill those two bastards that I got in the tower. Buckingham hesitates. This was the death warrant for Buckingham. Immediately, Richard then turns and goes to another man, his servant, faithful servant, Tyrrell, and says, go and kill those two bastards. Tyrrell takes a couple of men in, and they smother the boys in their beds. Now, he's ready to move on, and he's ready to become king of England, and once more, he's summoned Queen Anne to come and be next to him to be his queen. They, they have a very, very bad relationship, and, and it's quite obvious to Richard that Queen Anne is not a good marriage, and it's not going to further his ambitious goals. So he sets his sights on a new wife, and it happens to be Elizabeth, his niece. Gross. I know. But that's what he wants to do. He wants to marry Elizabeth. She, of course, does not want to marry him. He's killed her father. He's killed her uncle. He's killed her brothers. And yet, this is what he's after. So Richard lets it be known that his wife has died, and now he's free to marry and he wants to marry Elizabeth. But before he can do that, Buckingham runs off to France and finds a very lowly lord by the name of Richmond. Now, if you remember back to Henry VI, Part Three, I talked about how Shakespeare goes out of his way to praise a young nobleman by the name of Richmond. Richmond, turns out, in history, would eventually become Henry VII, the first Tudor king of England, and the grandfather of Elizabeth. This must not be forgotten because this is a very important part of Richard III being what Richard III is. Buckingham goes to join Richmond and says, I will help you overthrow Richard. So they plot and Buckingham starts with a slight rebellion on his part. It's quickly put under by Richard's men and Buckingham runs uh, into hiding. He's eventually caught and he's eventually put to death. Meanwhile, Richmond, also known as Henry Tudor, arrives with his small forces. Now, his stepfather is Lord Stanley. He's a very, very powerful man. And Richard is counting on Stanley's and his support in a battle against Henry Tudor. Well, Lord Stanley is not so willing to stand against his stepson. So, of course, Richard imprisons Lord Stanley's real son in a tower and says, he'll be fine until after the war. Just make sure you're on the right side. Well... Henry Stanley does what he has to do, and he marshals his forces to meet up with Richard on Boswell Field, where they are going to encounter Henry Tudor. Well, the night before the battle, Richard has a horrible dream. And in the dream, he sees all the people he has killed come back to taunt him. They've all come back to swear that he will pay and that tomorrow he will die on the battlefield. It is a very gothic 
terrifying, unbelievable dream. But the same spirits then go and visit Richmond, or and I should say, Henry Tudor. And they praise him, promise him victory the next day on the field, and all will go his way. Next day when they awaken, Richard tells himself, that was just a dream. It means nothing. We're going to win this. I'm not worried. Whereas Henry Tudor has suddenly buoyed and feels stronger. He knows that he's about to meet a group of people on the battlefield that have far more men, far more superior armory. He should lose his fight. But Henry Tudor is certain that the spirits have promised him victory. So he goes to meet Richard on the battlefield. All right, so on one hill, you have Richard with his massive forces, which is around 10,000 men, I believe. Then you have down below the ridge where Richard is, is Henry Tudor with his meager seven to 8,000 men. And then off to the side, watching this entire battle, you have Lord Stanley, another impressive about 8,000 men. Wherever Lord Stanley goes, that's where the victor is going to be. All three men are certain of this. The battle begins and it is not going well for Henry Tudor. His forces are being slaughtered, getting knocked back and unfortunately, Henry Tudor and a small entourage gets separated from the battlefield. Richard sees this as his opportunity and mounts a charge with a small cavalry to take them out. This is the finish line for Lord Stanley. He orders his men into the battle and against Richard's men. The fight is intense. Richard is, loses his horse. It comes out from underneath him and yet he stands up and fights and screams, A horse, a horse, a kingdom for my horse, and continues to battle, taking out man after man. Until, of course, in the smoke and the glare of the battle, here comes Henry Tudor with sword a-gleaming. The two of them clash, the two of them fight, and Richard is dispatched. Henry is proclaimed on the battlefield the new king of England, Henry II, first Tudor king of England, and he is promised to marry Elizabeth, the same woman that Richard wanted to marry, joining once again the House of York and the House of Lancaster into a beautiful Tudor rose. The War of the Roses is ended, and the victor is both families because they are joined together, and a great dynasty begins under the Tudors, or does it? We'll find out on the other side as I talk about the story behind the story, and there's a lot of story behind the story of Richard III, so don't go away. We're going to have a message from our sponsors, and when we come back, you're going to hear the other side of Richard III. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you all here to this, my episode 17 of Shannon Shakespeare's Shunday, and my episode devoted to Richard III. Number 17 has always been important to me. I have 16 siblings, so 17 has always been a very special number to me, and this is a very special episode because Richard III is a really intense play, which I could dedicate several episodes to this play. I'm sorry how fast I went through that synopsis earlier in, in the first part of our program today, but I only have a half-hour program, and there's a lot to talk about. And I'm going to start with the meat of what I want to talk about, and that is, did Richard III get a raw deal by Shakespeare? Well, he got a raw deal, all right, and he got a raw deal by history, let alone Shakespeare. Anytime you talk about these histories, you're talking about Shakespeare taking a historical event and turning it into a stage production. He messes with things. He collapses time. He moves items around. People die out of order. They die before something else happens. It's all done for dramatic effect. And for the most part, it's not that big a deal. It, it adds to the play and, and the enjoyment of it. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong. And I certainly don't think anything in Richard III is wrong because I think it's a brilliant play. It's written 98%, by the way, in blank verse. 
only 2% in prose. And so you really do have a, a brilliant play masterfully created. And again, many people believe Shakespeare is writing a lot of this on his own, although not necessarily all of it. The other thing that is really remarkable about this play to me is how he changes history and what he changes in it and why. First of all, let's start with some very, very basic stuff. The crook back, the hump, the withered arm, the, the club foot. Were any of these things true? If you look at the paintings from the Tudor period, anything that had Richard III in it, one shoulder is raised. He, it looks like he has a hump. For a lot of reasons, in the Middle Ages particularly, they had this belief that if you were somehow crippled or malformed, it was because of sins of your parents or the sin of your own soul that caused that to happen. They believed that people who had crooked backs or, or crooked legs were because they were dishonest people and they were being punished by God for the malformity. It must have been very hard to be born with a, for a poor disfiguration that is none of your fault. But nonetheless, that's what the medieval believed. But then an interesting thing happened. They, they, they did, in modern times anyway, they were able to scan these paintings and look deep into them. And they found out that the hump was added later. The painting was done in the Middle Ages when Richard was alive, but the hump was added probably around the Tudor time. It was an attempt by the Tudor people to really vilify Richard. And then there's his bones. For a long time, nobody knew where he was buried. He's the only king without a tomb, or at least until recently. And then his bones were found in London, and of all things, a parking garage had been built over his gravesite. They were able to exhume his bones and, and test for DNA, and literally, they found out, A, not only did he not have a hump or a withered arm or a club foot, but he did have a curved spine. He had scoliosis, and so it's very possible that the disfigurement was witnessed from the outside, but certainly not anything as dramatic as a hump. The other thing is that why? Why was Richard depicted as a hump? Why was he so vilified? And for that, I'm going to go to Henry II. Shakespeare never wrote a play about Henry II, but Henry II is a monarch who follows Richard. He's called Henry Tudor, and he's called Henry Tudor because his father was Owen Tudor. And his father, Owen Tudor, married the widow of Henry IV. So there was a line of blood that came back down through the ages to Henry. However, Henry Tudor's father, Owen Tudor, was a servant. He was a commoner. Henry II had very little claim to the throne. By the time Richard claims the throne, and he's on the throne for two years, there was a lot of people who wanted Richard out. And they wanted the Plantagenets, Lancasters, to take the throne back. But by then, the Yorks had pretty much dealt a deadly blow to any Lancasters left. There were darn few people who shared the bloodline. Henry was the closest thing they had. So Henry was ginned up, Henry Tudor, to become the next king of England if he could only succeed in taking Richard out. Henry also had another thing on his side, and that was that his stepfather, Lord Stanley, was very popular and did indeed have a huge force that he could bring to any battle. And it was a hope that Lord Stanley would come to the aid of Henry of Tudor so that they could depose Richard III. But it was not a done deal. Nobody knew for certain what was going to happen, particularly since Richard had such power in England. So, so Henry does this. Henry comes in and he does defeat Richard on the battlefield. It's now important for history to somehow make Henry the bright and just king of England 
And when your bloodline is very thin like that, the only choice you have is to vilify the man you have beaten. And so history went out of its way to vilify Richard. Long before Shakespeare ever picked up a pen, the idea of a misshapen evil lord like Richard III had already been instilled in the English heart. It had been in plays, it had been in writings, it had been in poems, it had been in songs. And so Shakespeare was really following along. Also, the direct descendant of Henry VII, Queen Elizabeth, is on the throne. She's left no heir, she's getting up in years, but it's not wise to antagonize your sovereign. And so, of course, Shakespeare toes the line and makes Richard out to be the masterful villain that he is, and he is masterful. I mean, this is the, one of the best villains. He and Iago from Othello are up there as two of the greatest villains in all of Shakespeare's history. Now, let's talk about what kind of a betrayal Richard could have been involved in. The play says, from the very beginning, I am evil, I am misformed, I want to take over. Well, that was not Richard. Richard was very loyal to his brother, Edward IV. Matter of fact, it was his other brother, Clarence, or the Duke of Clarence, otherwise known as George, who led not only one, but two different rebellions against Edward to try and take the throne away from him. Two! He failed both times, and after the second one, Edward couldn't take it anymore and decided to put him to death. But since their mother was still alive, he wanted to make sure it was done in a way that she would approve of, so he allowed Clarence to pick his mode of execution. He chose to be hung upside down in a barrel of wine. So he smothered himself to death, drowned in wine, which is probably the most unique way for anyone to go out. But that was the bad brother, Clarence. Shakespeare doesn't pick on Clarence because he doesn't have to. Clarence is long gone and his attempts at taking over the crown mean nothing. It had to be Richard. And Richard stayed very, very loyal to Henry all through his life until he died. And Richard did exactly what is described in the play. He had the uncles of the two boys arrested and put to death. He had the two boys taken to the tower and he kept them there. They were seen at first playing in the grounds and then suddenly they disappeared from sight. Richard never talked about them. The other thing Richard did was he revised an idea that not only were they illegitimate, but they were illegitimate because their father was illegitimate. Now this was an old story that, that Edward IV was a bastard. There had been rumors and stories about it during the Middle Ages, but there was certainly no proof. Until recently, proof was discovered, or at least possible proof was discovered, in France. In the notation in a rectory for a special mass that was asked to be said for Duke of York, Richard Duke of York, the father of Edward IV. That mass was said for him to give him safe passage on his campaign into Brittany. He was gone for over eight months. Sometime during the time that he was gone, Edward was conceived. And we know two things about this. We know that when Edward was born, there was a very quiet, solemn baptism a very quiet celebration. But when his younger brother, George, who would become Duke of Clarence, was born, there was a massive party and great celebration. The other thing is, Edward looked nothing like his brother. He was over six foot tall, very tall for English, and a bit more rugged and handsome. Whereas Clarence and Richard didn't look like that at all. What he did look like was a great French bowman who was serving in the court under his parents in France while his father was gone. Now, now let's, let's take this from Richard's point of view. You are serving your brother who is King of England. 
They're standing next to him even when his your other brother tries to depose him because that's the right thing to do. Then when he's dead and he wants to put his kid on the throne, you reveal this terrible family secret. You say, look, I've known about this forever. My brother was illegitimate. I am the only true ruler. Or was he doing this because it was the right thing to do? Or was it blind ambition? This was his only way to the crown. And who killed the boys? This day, we don't know who killed the boys. But somebody did. And it could have been Richard. All things point to it probably being Richard. But Henry VII, who takes over the crown after Richard is deposed on the battlefield, would have had much more reason to kill the boys. These boys had a much cleaner and clearer passage to the crown. Keep in mind, there was no evidence of grandmother's infidelity publicly known at that time. So certainly, these children, both boys, would have had a stronger claim to the throne than Henry VII. So if Henry VII would have returned to the tower, he would have had them killed. He would have had no choice, or all of this would have been for nothing. So the big question of who killed the kids has remained on the docket for years. Nobody really knows, and probably no one ever will. Bones were discovered buried under the stairs in one of the North Towers, but it was inconclusive as to whether or not they were male or female. They were so far degraded, it's really not certain. There is a great documentary about the finding of Richard's body. His body was found buried in a shallow grave that had become a car park somewhere outside of London. They exhumed Richard. They did tests, DNA tests. They found out for sure it was him. They were even able to reconstruct his face, and it looked very much like the portraits that you see painted. And then he was given a proper kingly burial. The only English monarch who up until that point had not had a proper funeral, and the only English monarch to die on the battlefield. And that's the next thing I want to talk about before I run out of time, and that is the end of the play. Shakespeare has Richard riding into the fray. He loses his horse, crawls out from under his horse, and calls, A horse, a horse, a kingdom for my horse. He kills men with his sword as he's fighting his way through to get to Henry Tudor. Henry Tudor comes from the smoke and the fog. They meet on the battlefield. They fight, and Henry Tudor kills him. How true is that? 50-50. Richard did ride into that battlefield. Richard did have his horse shot out from underneath him. He did crawl out, and he did continue to fight, taking men down one after another. But he wasn't alone. He had a small company of soldiers around him, but one by one, they were all taken out. All of them, until it was Richard alone. And then, he was piled upon by Henry Tudor's men. He was beaten several times. They, they, they note on his body when they found him that he had over nine gashes to the skull. And who knows how many wounds he would have had on his soft tissue that had decayed away. He was a victim of a massive, massive onslaught. Richard fought to the very end. He fought with all the energy he had, all the strength he had, all the might he had. And he died on that battlefield with great bravery. And here's the other thing about Richard that no plays touch on. Richard himself had a reign of just two years. Two years. The play makes it look like he had a reign of barely two weeks. But he reigned for two years. And in that two years, he established that people could not be brought to trial without evidence of guilt. 
He had the laws of the land translated from Latin to English and posted so that people could see what the rules of the community was that they lived in. Of course, if they could read, and this is the Middle Ages. Richard showed to be a very just and dutiful king to his people. He was popular with his people. Now, it is true, he did want to marry his niece, and that is Grody. But, this is also the Middle Ages. A lot of different rules applied, particularly if you were of the royal bent. But Richard was not this great villain. There's a lot of people who believe he got a raw deal in history. And he did. He did. As much of a raw deal as he may have gotten. Shakespeare's play, Richard III, was immensely popular. It's the only one of his histories that was published four times before his death because people just wanted to read it over and over again. They kept going into quarter publications. All right, so that's the first tetralogy, William Shakespeare. Thank you for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75live.com. I'm Shannon Riley, and remember, keep it barred to the bone.